1: Welcome back to Awkward Saxon City. I'm so happy to have you guys here. I'm always so humbled and honored that you guys tune in, have subscribed, have liked, have downloaded, have maybe shared, talked about with your friends. And without you, without people sharing and subscribing and liking, I wouldn't be where I am today. And because of that, I like to do something called episode takeovers when I have friends and people that I I love that are creating and making new things. And I allow them to put their episode on a podcast so that you guys, my lovely listeners, can listen to and most likely love, like, subscribe, and download. Sorry as my voice goes in and out, I'm like losing my voice, um, which makes sense for this past week, which... I'm not going to go into because Mary Aliska, who's been on this podcast before and one of my favorite people in the world, has created a podcast called Babcast, which is a black and proud History podcast where we go through episodes and we learn about black history. I find this especially important as as we have states fucking um, trying to ban critical race theory and trying to whitewash history over and over again, which we already experience. And this is just a perfect podcast to learn so much that what we aren't taught about and what we should be. So guys, I hope you enjoy. I hope you love, download, like, subscribe, Babcast, and it's available on all streaming platforms. And I hope you enjoy the episode.
2: Living in 21st century America, even with its numerous flaws. It's hard to imagine that there was a time when the army rejected willing and able recruits purely on the basis of sex or race. The tradition of women, especially black women in the military had a rocky start and is still undergoing traumatizing and sometimes tragic growing pains. Legislation that even today excludes individuals from service for not meeting some arbitrary requirement is incredible to me. Anyone with a vested interest in defending America at times of war should, because I'm certainly not about to. Today, with our country so divided on what it means to be a patriot, it's more important than ever to look back and recognize those who served their country even before it served them. In this episode, we'll focus on the inspiring life and career of Charity Adams Early, the first black woman army officer to serve overseas. Adams and the members of the first all-Black woman company she led excelled in the face of discrimination in order to show the world the true meaning of patriotism and an early taste of Black excellence. Charity Edna Adams was born December 5th, 1918 and raised in North Carolina by a teacher mother and minister educator father. By the time she began the first grade, she had already been confronted with the realities of racism. She and her brother watched one of the biggest KKK parades ever held from the second story at their home. It was around this time that the Greek children down the street who had been their best friends were no longer permitted by their parents to play with them. Once Charity got to high school, her route to school cut across a small shopping area in which most of the customers were white. You know the kind. Racism, of course, dictated the behavior of Charity and her friends in that they didn't dare to linger in the shopping area as teenagers love to do. Instead, they shuffled through the center quickly to avoid derogatory remarks. There are many ways in which black people have been robbed of their personhood. And I understand that this particular way is relatively minor, but when I was a teen, loitering was my passion simply sitting on top of a public table in the corner of a food court and being obnoxious for hours on end pretty much defined the ages of 12 through 15 for me. But I had white friends, which was basically a key to the city or the mall. Though, as we are still constantly reminded, no amount of good behavior can guarantee a black child safety from racism. And as Charity and her siblings grew older, they became gradually aware of a separate and unequal black social order and white social order. Charity describes it in her autobiography, One Woman's Army, like this. Each side knew the rules, even though the white order having made the rules included members who changed the rules at will. When the penalty for violating the rules of the white order could range anywhere from humiliation to death, it was prudent to stay on your toes and out of the way. Charity's mother was extremely generous and caring, described as having a philanthropist's heart despite her pauper's purse. Charity's father could read Greek and Hebrew, as had been required by his seminary training, and purchased newspapers in both languages. So literally, if you said, it's all Greek to me, he'd be like, hand it over, assuming he was the dad joke type. Both were educators, and the lessons didn't end when Charity went to college, as her mom would correct the errors in Charity's letters with red pen before returning them. Charity never made the same error twice. She graduated from Booker T. Washington High School without missing a single day of school and as valedictorian, meaning she had her pick of colleges. She worked a student job all four years of college and became involved in many campus activities and organizations such as the Women's Self-Government Association, the NAACP, the YMCA, the Delta Sigma Theta Sorority, and the Literary Society. She graduated with majors in mathematics, physics, Latin, and a minor in history. She returned to her hometown, as did many of her peers and began teaching in the same segregated school system in which she had been a student. Her white counterparts were high school graduates, really driving home how black people had to be twice or six or eight times as qualified to achieve equivalent professional success to whites. Luckily, that's over. Charity was always striving to be more and would not be satisfied with mediocrity, though as we've established, the charity train never even paused at the mediocrity station. Between school years, she attended summer quarters at Ohio State University and registered as a candidate for her master's degree, with her major interest being vocational psychology. This was around the time when certain family mottos really started to resonate with her more deeply, such as... Don't advertise when you are down. When people believe you are down, they press down. When people think you are up, they push up. Don't worry that people talk about you. Just hope that the talk is good. The time to worry is when no one mentions you at all, for it means that you have made no impression. Don't tell a lie. You may have to tell a second, even a third, to protect the first one. Real trouble begins when you forget the order in which you told them. Don't look back when you have made a decision. You cannot change the past, and looking back only impedes forward movement. These words of wisdom were just a few foundational attitudes that she carried with her into this next chapter of her life. After being recommended by the Dean of Women at Wilberforce University, Charity received her invitation to join the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, or WAAC, which was to work with the Army, quote, for the purpose of making available to the national defense the knowledge, skill, and special training of the women of the nation, end quote i.e. typing, switchboard operation, and administrative tasks that men simply could not be trusted with. She was approaching her fourth year of teaching at the time, and the personal letter attached emphasized career and leadership opportunities. Though Charity had previously set her career expectations based on her understanding of the limitations white society had placed on her race, she knew her dean would only recommend that she apply if she truly believed in the opportunities she described. Charity mailed in her application in June, 1942 and expected to hear back almost immediately because obviously she was it and she knew the army was thirsty. After a week of silence, however, she was completely over it because this organization clearly did not have its shit together if it didn't treat her application with the reverence and urgency it deserved. She chided herself for daring to dream and decided to forget all about it and move on with her life, which in this case meant going back to Ohio State but oh no, said her aunt who intercepted her at the train station in Knoxville, Tennessee with a message to call home immediately. The world before cell phones was so recent and yet so foreign. Her aunt, fortunately, had no problem finding her because the colored section was in the back half of the second baggage car handy. The message was that the Army had responded to her application via telegram with instructions to report to Atlanta, Georgia by 8 a.m., which was a financial and space-time impossibility for her, being that time of night in Tennessee. So she continued on to Ohio. When she arrived, she explained the dilemma to her friends, who are helpful in that they suggested she pay a visit to Fort Hayes for advice, while also telling her that she must be crazy to give up the security of her teaching position for the uncertainty of this new, weird Auxiliary Corps women in the Army. It just doesn't make any sense, Charity. It's the 40s. But Charity didn't want no certainty. She wanted adventure in that great wide somewhere and she was going to go for it. She popped into Fort Sumter to see what was up and essentially experienced the IRL equivalent of when you call customer service and none of them really want to help you. So they just ping pong you around all day for their own amusement. She eventually caught a break in the form of a homesick captain from South Carolina who made two long-distance calls to Atlanta, complete with follow-up telegrams, requesting that Charity's application be transferred to Fort Hayes. After a physical examination, which confirmed she was in excellent health and an in-person interview, Charity was confident that she would indeed be accepted and started making the mental adjustments that come with knowing your whole life is about to change. Word spread among Charity's friends and community that she was probably going to be accepted into the army, and people began expressing a lot of interest and some concern, which didn't take long for her to understand. You see, in the America of the 40s, society pretty much went out of its way to hinder any PR of Negroes appearing to be special, successful, honorable, and especially first. Even black men who enlisted in the army were, more often than not, denied the opportunity to fight for their country and were instead relegated to the dirtiest and least military positions as the unappreciated support personnel. Though there were, of course, segregated units that served their country with distinction including the Tuskegee Airmen, the 761st Tank Battalion, and the lesser known, but just as badass, 452nd Anti-Aircraft Artillery Battalion. And the fact that I had honestly never heard of the latter two before looking them up just now in Wikipedia just goes to show how necessary it is for me to do this podcast just for my own education and knowledge. Despite the trepidation of her community, Charity felt special that the Army wanted her. On Monday, July 13th, 1942, she reported to Fort Hayes to be sworn into the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. She even appeared on the cover of a white newspaper without, get this, having done anything criminal, which was quite the rarity indeed. Charity's community was hype about this positive representation, and she felt the support. A few days later, on the 18th of July, Charity reported again to Fort Hayes, this time ready to travel to the first WAAC training center. The truck that they traveled in had sleeping accommodations, or berths, which slept two on the upper and two on the lower level, and the journey to the training facility was fully integrated birthmates were chosen by friendship. So Charities was a young white woman who had been a faculty member at Ohio State. What struck her the most upon first seeing Fort Des Moines was how serenely beautiful it was. I googled it and it's pretty cute. Red brick buildings with white columns and tall trees. As soon as the women arrived, they were assembled in the mess hall And Charity immediately became aware of all the reporters and photographers and media attention that would remain a constant presence throughout the training of these WAACs. As previously mentioned, the ride to Fort Des Moines was fully integrated, and that whole group bonded because venturing into the unknown together transcended any arbitrary dividers like age, race, or class— But don't worry, the army fixed that right up. After arriving in the mess hall, they were shown to a reception center, and it was here that the colored girls were asked to move to a separate table, after which the white girls were called individually by name and led to their rooms. The black women soon found their new home in Barracks 54 though their introduction to army life had them treated as a monolith. The new residents of Barracks 54 that made up the third platoon were 39 distinct personalities representing a wide range of social statuses, occupations, and reasons for joining the army. The most popular among them was the belief that the more women contributed to the war effort by joining the army, the quicker the war would be ended, meaning the drafted men they loved would be home sooner. There were originally meant to be 40 women who would make up the 3rd platoon. And Charity says that she later made the acquaintance of many women who claimed to be the missing 40th member, but they were all lying because it was me. (laughs) When the 3rd platoon was getting outfitted in uniforms, they learned that every army issued garment came in two sizes, too big and too small. But when it all finally came together, they looked real sharp. The WAACs were issued a uniform for every occasion, button-down and skirt or dress, never pants, in winter and summer weights, of course, and even issued a shoulder bag and handkerchiefs. The 3rd Platoon encountered plenty of racial prejudice, but thankfully not from the white male non-coms or non-commissioned officers who were assigned to train them though they did probably take it personally that they were relegated to training women. The training officers would be judged by their superiors on the performance of their trainees, which was incentive enough for them to keep their personal lamentations to themselves and keep things profesh. Even though the training and housing was equal, it was still very obviously separate, making it impossible for Charity to ignore the fact that her platoon was segregated. The army jobs available to Negroes were extremely limited at the time, so she kept her assignment expectations low by expressing interest in being a truck driver because that seemed like the most interesting of the jobs that would be available to her. But as hard as it tried, the segregation did not negatively impact the friendships that were formed between white and black trainees as they continued to study and socialize together. The classroom training curriculum was largely identical to that of men, except for the tactical training. Her real chef's kiss subject was the close order drill. She took to it immediately. She studied hard, and even though she didn't give the most authoritative commands at first, she didn't allow herself to become discouraged. She and her friends practiced their command voices until she learned what it meant to truly speak from the diaphragm, and since then has always been able to make herself heard. The constant parades helped Charity really hone her skills for leading marches, and since there had never been women in the army before, locals began coming in droves to witness them in action. After six weeks of training, Charity and her fellow trainees graduated and became commissioned third officers on August 28, 1942. As names were called alphabetically, she became the first Negro woman to receive a commission in the WAAC. The only insignia available to them was that of the second lieutenant, since the role of third officer in the WAC was comparable to that of second lieutenant. So with that, they received their gold bars. The next day, Officer Adams' interview with the officer who had helped determine her army classification or job didn't necessarily leave her feeling inspired. He asked if she wanted to do public relations or recruiting, and she had no experience with either of those things, and thus no meaningful insight as to whether she would enjoy them or not. The captain essentially responded by throwing his hands up and saying, I don't know what we're going to do with you, young woman, which is just what you want to hear, after you just uprooted your entire life and dedicated all of your waking hours in hopes of serving a country that doesn't even like you. (sighs) Two weeks after they had been commissioned, Officer Adams was assigned to be company commander of the Basic Training Company and was soon given orders to activate the Company 12 3rd Regiment in Boomtown. This would be the first all-Negro WAAC company. I came across an article in an October 1942 issue of the Des Moines Register boasting that Boomtown construction was completed in 40 days. Though completed probably wasn't the term its new residents would have gone with. Most of the structural clay buildings were missing windows and doors, and the ones that were there still had the manufacturer stickers on them. There were no sidewalks or landscaping, so persistent rainfall resulted in a nightmarishly muddy situation, and everything was generally grimy from construction dirt. But Officer Adams and her company mates Wasted no time rolling up their sleeves And getting to work She spent her own money to purchase the cleaning supplies And the platoon really put their hearts into cleaning Until somebody finally informed them That Company 12 was actually supposed to reside In the buildings across the street Adams was so discouraged She almost cried after all the work she had put in And I would have too there are some exceedingly labor-intensive, futile efforts I've made that I will never recover from. This discouraging mix-up was quickly followed by changes to company designations. Company 12 became, company 14 became company eight, but no shake-up in designation could alter the bond growing between officers, especially since none of them really knew what their duties were and had to learn together on the fly. Because of this, each company was assigned white male officers to help advise them along the way. Officer Adams felt fortunate to have had a positive relationship with all of the male officers with whom she worked. Some even became friends. When Company 8 started, the commissioned third officers performed all the roles from first sergeant to squad leader, simply because there weren't any Negro recruits coming in to fill the non-commissioned positions. The officers rotated roles frequently to give everyone the opportunity to perform, all the while unsure of whether their success would be measured in an all-Negro world or the all-WAAC world when they finally greeted their first auxiliaries for training. There were almost as many recruits as there were officers to train them. The newbies suffered the same shortage of only the specific sizes they needed when it came to being issued their uniform. So at first they looked like a very ragtag army indeed, supplementing their uniforms with civilian clothes. Still, Officer Adams took every group of civilian women and turned them out six weeks later as well-trained soldiers. She was confident that the Best WAACs the training center had to offer were none other than the women of Company 8. In December of 1942, Adams was promoted to second lieutenant and looking forward to her first visit back to South Carolina as the hometown girl who made good. Her route to get there was on the South Carolina Special, which was segregated, as were all the railway systems in the South. This conflicted with its respect for military service members when the steward called for all persons in uniform to be the first passengers accommodated in the dining car. When Lieutenant Adams stepped forward in uniform, he blocked the doorway with his arm repeating angrily, I said, all persons in uniform first. Before she could even respond to this blatant act of disrespect to, if you think about it, the entire military institution. She heard a voice behind her say, and just what do you think that is that she has on? Get your goddamn arm down before I break it off you. Lieutenant Adams was so surprised by the heavy accent that she whipped around and saw a tall, blonde haired second lieutenant who was red in the face with anger. He continued to loudly protest. What in the world are we fighting this damned war for? She's given her service, too, and can eat anywhere I can. And by Jesus, I'm going to eat with her in this diner. At this point, Lieutenant Adams was shook, as was I, neither of us knowing what was going to happen next. Silence fell as every passenger stopped to take in the action. To Adams' surprise, the steward stepped aside and showed her to her seat, When the diners resumed their meals, the only sound was the click of utensils on plates until the second lieutenant sat across from her and continued his tirade against crackers and cheap whites and what this war is all about. Adam says that he did all the talking throughout the meal, then escorted her back to her seat, bowed, and left. She never saw him again. I was like, girl, what? Get them digits. But of course, I understand that that wasn't the world they were living in at the time on a variety of levels. As luck would have it, the local NAACP chapter had its annual meeting while Adams was in town. As she sat listening to the proceedings in the church auditorium led by her father, who was the local chapter president, an old family friend quietly informed her That the Ku Klux Klan had surrounded her family's home, as well as the home of the state president of the NAACP, who was also in attendance. Casual. With great difficulty, Adams managed to wait until the meeting was over to inform her father of what was going on. When her family arrived home at dusk, they saw a line of men bedecked in white hoods with cars parked on the street outside, gathered in strength, watching the house. They didn't make any moves when the family arrived home. They didn't make any moves when Mr. Adams gave instructions to her, her mother, and her little sister and brother, who were home, to not in any way provoke the Klan. They didn't make any moves when he then took his double-barreled shotgun and shells and left his family to drive over to the home of the state and AACP president, who was home alone, and provide backup. No, I don't know why he didn't just invite Reverend Hinton to come to the Adams family home and wait out the standoff together. The only thing I can think of was that he must have thought his leaving would somehow minimize the risk of provocation. The clan stood vigil outside the family's home as they sat in the dark, watching, lighting the occasional cigarette, all through the night until dawn, when they left. The whole thing was reported to local authorities who, of course, couldn't do anything about men parked on the street. Spring came in Boomtown and the women of Company 8 wasted no time on their beautification project. They planted grass, built a white picket fence, planted trees and flowers, eventually making their quarters into such a lovely sight to behold that they were ordered to take it down a notch as it was beginning to look more civilian than military. Company eight won many inspections and were constantly winning first place in parades under the leadership of the now captain Adams and was the pride of the training center. Whenever distinguished visitors arrived at the post, it was company eight who demonstrated how things were done. Mainstream America's attitude toward the WAACs soured slightly after the first six months of hearing nothing but glowing reports. Obviously women doing a good job can only sell so many newspapers. So soon rumors started to develop about the unsavory reputation of the kinds of women who joined the WAACs, characterizing them as strange and frustrated and insinuating that the organization was essentially a glorified prostitution ring. These rumors were, of course, meritless and were clearly born out of a toxic combination of boredom and jealousy, but it still must have sucked for hardworking WAACs of any race. You know what else sucks? Racism. I mean, I hate to keep bringing it up, but dang, y'all, is it ever prevalent. Imagine this. You and your four best friends in your small town are like, let's all hold hands and join the army together, ride or die, BFFs. You sign up, you road trip to Fort Des Moines together. Then when you get there, your friends are all sent off to the same company of white women while you are sent to live with a company of Negro women. This is your introduction to the race as a whole as you have never before seen Negroes in person. Such was the case of a young officer candidate who joined Company 8. After days of sobbing inconsolably about her fate, she finally was able to relay to Captain Adams between sobs that years before, a Negro man's car had become snowbound when he was passing through her small town. He stayed, worked, and married her mother, had her, and died. She was the only Negro in her town, but looked white, so the issue of race had never come up, all of which she could have possibly died not knowing had she never joined the WAACs. Now, she hated her family for keeping this secret and feared the people she was expected to live with. Racism did that. She eventually adjusted after ample counseling and encouragement, stayed to complete her training, and went on to an assignment away from her hometown friends per her own request. Though interest in joining the Negro WAACs was slow at first, it soon increased to the point of overflowing simply because some Army bases wouldn't accept Negro WAACs no matter how well-trained they were. While they awaited assignment, the living conditions became crowded. Mealtime scheduling was wonky, and yet this is company eight we're talking about, and they were still under pressure to stay at the top of their game. I'm sure it became difficult to see what the point was of working so hard if the reward for being the best was being crammed into segregated quarters awaiting assignment. Still, being part of company eight meant something. There were requests to be transferred to the company. There were jealousies expressed about the company. They were skilled soldiers and more with a variety of talents that they had opportunities to showcase in elaborate company reviews. Company 8 had two of the most beautiful concert voices Adams had ever heard, along with a concert violinist, several pianists, dramatic artists, comedians, and a seasoned mistress of ceremonies. But the curtain had to fall eventually. In May, Adams reported to headquarters for a meeting with a colonel who informed her that she would be leaving Company 8. She was stunned. She had spent so long as the company's only CO and felt perfectly content to spend the rest of her army career right where she was. But the colonel explained that she was doing such an insanely good job and had proven her worth as company commander so thoroughly that it was simply time for her to move on. Captain Adams was adored by her officers and NCOs who made it clear how appreciated she was and how missed she would be. A couple of days later, she reported to her new job at training center headquarters, where she learned that she was now to be part of the plans and training section. This meant supervising the training of new auxiliaries, helping develop new phases of training, and seeing that everyone had what they needed. She also got to teach some drill classes, and leading the expert marching unit of company eight was what she missed most. So that was really fulfilling for her. She even took trips to the Pentagon to petition to increase the quota of Negro WAACs in active duty areas. On September 1st, 1943, the WAAC underwent its transformation from auxiliary status to full-fledged Army unit with all the perks. Of course, their pay and insurance wasn't as much as the men received, but it was definitely an improvement in status. The women could either take this opportunity to withdraw from service or be sworn into the Women's Army Corps, or WAC. Shortly after, Captain Charity Adams was promoted to major and worked as control officer. There was a plan proposed by headquarters to have a separate but equal Negro training regiment with separate but equal Negro promotional opportunities. However, Major Adams had grown up in the South, so she was not the one to fall for it. She knew that separate but equal was a trap and a lie. In a meeting where it was discussed that she would be expected to lead the regiment, she said she wanted no part of it. She wanted to succeed as a WAC officer, not a Negro WAC officer. This ended the meeting, and every Negro WAC in attendance walked out without a word to her. She said that this was when she learned one of life's hardest lessons. Do not depend on the support of others for causes. Fortunately, some later did express that they understood where she was coming from, but it still stung that her girls didn't initially realize that she hadn't denied them any opportunities and was acting in their best interest. To her relief, the plan for the all-Negro regiment was dropped. Major Adams was the only Negro officer at headquarters for a long time, and ended up filling a variety of odd roles, such as figuring out the best ways of boosting morale and getting newly pregnant women to sign their discharge papers. She was also often set out as convoy officer, and says that her travels provided interesting and sometimes scary experiences. She was lucky enough never to have been physically assaulted, unlike another Negro WAC she knew. But there was an instance that was just so timelessly American in which she was sitting on a train in her uniform, minding her own damn business. During the afternoon ride, a well-dressed white woman continued to glare at her from a few seats away, as Major Adams did her best to focus on her own book business. When one of the military p- police came by, the woman stopped him and urged him to check on that negra over there. She might be an imposter. <sighs> Adams continued to look down at her book while listening in on the convo in which Karen would not let up until the MP told her, ma'am, I am here in case of trouble or a problem of some kind. There is no problem here. If I check, to use your word, that officer and she is not an imposter, I might not be a sergeant tomorrow. Turns out the risk of losing one's job can be a powerful incentive for police to mind their own business. He also notes that posing as someone that highly ranked would be really silly since there were so few WAC majors in the army. And if my girl didn't take this opportunity to flip her hair, she should have. The examples I'm giving are just a bird's eye view of what her autobiography divulged. And it wouldn't have been possible for her to record every racist experience of her life anyway. I can't even do that. And mine have been far less frequent and extreme. People sometimes forget that racial discrimination was law in the United States up until very recently, especially when you take into account how long black people have existed in this country. Adams points out that it's difficult to remember all the unpleasantness that she experienced during this time in her life because the fond memories are so much stronger. But her experience in the Army wasn't at all just some happy adventure. She was just as scared, uncertain, prone to complaining, and critical as anyone else, both in terms of being a Black woman and a WAC officer in 1940s America. Segregation affected every aspect of the Negro WAC's lives. They weren't allowed to socialize in the officer's club, so they made their own. Even expertly trained Negro musicians were never considered talented enough to join the WAC band, so they made their own. Segregated facilities for Negroes were always given the designation of two, as designation one was reserved for whites, even if a facility for whites had not yet been established. At this point, Major Adams had been at T.C. so long, longer than any other Negro officer, that she started to feel like a mother figure. But that was all about to change. First, a small group of them were informed that the U.S. Army Command and General Staff School at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, would accept its first group of WAC officers in early 1945, and that they had been chosen to be part of it. This was incredibly exciting because this was the Army's highest level of school, and its students were generals and field officers, many with combat experience and many more years of service under their belts. However, Adams received transfer orders before she ever even got to go to command and general staff school, which she cites as the only regret she has about her years in service. But she didn't get to be disappointed long because she soon learned she'd finally be going overseas. who was the only colonel who had been there as long as she had and who she considered a friend called her into his office and spilled the beans that she hadn't been at Des Moines for three years because nobody wanted her. He just refused to release her unless it was into a promotion and this was the best opportunity for her that had come across his desk. At first, Major Adams wasn't sure how to feel about it. She had grown so attached to her home in Des Moines. It was fully furnished with locally sourced secondhand treasures. She had maintained a beautiful garden. I mean, she had used her own blood, sweat, and tears to make Fort Des Moines home, and it was. But when she started screening the WACs who would be coming with her, it started to set in that this change was indeed what she wanted, and she really started getting excited about the idea. After the usual physical and psychiatric evaluations, she had her personnel. Their journey to Europe started with a training facility in Tennessee, where the realities of army life hit her in a way that they hadn't in Fort Des Moines. For one, she had been spending the last three years taking baths, so the six showerheads in a row with no partition situation was quite the adjustment. Adam's group was reunited with other officers from Fort Des Moines as they arrived in Tennessee. They did mask drills, obstacle course drills, and classroom training to prepare them for travel into the European Theater of Operations, or (laughs) ETO. Thus concludes Charity Adams Early Part One. Thank you so much for listening. If you wanna hit me up on social media, you can reach me on Instagram at bk.bap or on Twitter at bklo It really gets juicy in part two, which is out right now. So be sure to check it out. See you there.
1: Guys, didn't you love it? Didn't you learn so much? Remember to like, subscribe, download, follow her on Insta, BKBAP. Go follow and subscribe, download and like BAPCast. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye.